We hope you are enjoying our expanded podcast schedule. For the month of July, we have something new for our members. Each month, members who successfully answer our bonus content quiz will be entered for a chance to win a pair of AirPods Pro. To participate, you must have access to the bonus sections of the podcasts. Members also receive an ad-free listening experience, an evening newsletter, an invitation to join the DSR Slack community, and more. Best of all, if you become a member in the month of July, you'll receive 50% off the normal membership price. Visit thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and enter code fireworks at checkout. That's thedsrnetwork.com slash buy and code fireworks. Thank you for your support. This is Words Matter with Norm Ornstein. We've got the boats and screw the rest of you. And Dr. Kavita Patel. These might be some of the smaller moments, you know, with all the bombshells. Didn't catch people's eyes. Hello and welcome to Words Matter from the DSR Network. Each week, Norm Ornstein and I will talk about the issues facing our country as we head into another election cycle and discuss what our leaders are saying and doing or not saying and doing about them. Today we've got, uh, I, I, Norm, I've got to do a little catch up. I was uh, away for a week and uh, just like anything, there's a busy, busy set of topics to talk about. Everything from I did think that we could dedicate an entire podcast, uh, but I hadn't checked to see if you'd seen Barbenheimer. I wasn't sure if that was on your radar. I will confess that for the first time in three and a half years, I went to a movie theater and I did see the Barbie movie. So maybe uh, in our yeah. um, maybe in our members only section, I can give uh, our listeners a recap of my observations <laughs> from the Barbie movie. But uh, Norm, how, how how have you spent your weekend other than trying to stay indoors? Uh, we're in the middle of our debate camp, so debate everything camp. yeah, tell everything us. is about uh, debate camp now. Uh, the topic- can you can you give us a little bit of like the highlights and. Um, for listeners who may not have heard the other podcasts, and you should, uh, Norm and through his family foundation has been in, and you said now this is, you'll have to remind me which year this is, but for years now you have been doing a debate camp for high school students from um, the majority of kind of what I would describe as kind of the underserved communities or at least kind of communities of color uh, around the DC area and brought them in for an intensive with what I would just having you there alone is probably enough to be, um, you know, national stage worthy, but you, you sound like you've brought in folks and I've, I've already asked if, uh, we could do a words matter recording from the kind of the final, so to speak, but tell, tell our listeners where you are in debate camp and some highlights so far. So, we are uh, into uh, the second week of debate camp. Um, and the uh, first uh, week we had these varsity kids. These are kids who've been doing this for several years. Uh, now we've expanded. We've got uh, around uh, 150 to 160 kids, some of them in fifth grade, but going all the way up through high school. And it's policy debate. Uh, these are Title I schools. And, uh, you know, the kids are uh, mostly uh, 
in fact, nearly all from that underserved community. And the topic this year is income inequality. So I will give you one highlight so far, uh, Kavita. We had Rosa DeLauro oh, wow. speak to uh, our kids. And uh, Rosa, uh, of course, is really the uh, creator of the child tax credit. And the child tax credit, we know, um, reduced child poverty in half. It did more in one year than the war on poverty was able to do um, with a variety of different programs because it was giving people money and they were using it for essential things uh, is what we've learned. So Rosa talked about that to these kids and the questions from these novice debaters, these junior kids, um, including how does the child tax credit work for people who don't have bank accounts? Um, what do you do if people don't have fixed addresses? Um, all the tough questions that come in many cases from their own backgrounds that don't have easy answers. Um, but it's, uh, it's been amazing just to watch them and, uh, to watch these new kids. Uh, the first day, uh, we have these, uh, new debaters. They're mostly, uh, very young kids, fifth graders come in and they are taught about, they're taught, uh, wow. what's debate all so about. So they go as young as fifth grade, so, Norm? I, that's, well, I wasn't sure if, yeah. wow. Yeah. Yeah. Rising, Rising sixth graders. graders right. But still, that's uh, incredible. That's a yeah. great, um, and so that's, that's yeah. new in the debate community. I think that's like the entry kind of grade. Is that right? Or, okay. Yeah. It is. And, uh, and you know, the, these kids come in, what, what is debate all about? So they always do these fun little exercises, uh, one of which is kind of a standard. Um, are dogs better for humans than cats? Uh, and another is, uh, uh, is a hot dog a sandwich? And just watching these kids the uh, dog kids against the cat kids um, is hilarious. They stand up and basically uh, on their feet. I mean, they're uh, they're giving really insightful things, and then they move into the larger topic, uh, which is this year about income inequality, and that's an area where many of them have their own personal uh, experiences and stories. Um, but, you know, we have speakers come in. It's lively. They learn the basics of debate. The varsity kids uh, are uh, just uh, experts at this point and uh, some of the finer points uh, of debate. And uh, But it's a lot of work. Um, you know, we have to uh, – this is all free for these kids. We're, pro we're providing breakfast and lunch for, you know, between 150 and 175 kids every day. Um, and uh, so uh, it's a full-time job for us for uh, uh, what is the uh, uh, two weeks of camp, uh, three weeks for the, uh, uh, for the varsity kids. This uh, coming uh, Saturday, uh, we always do a field trip. We're taking them to the Capitol. Uh, to get a tour of the Capitol, and then we'll talk a little bit about uh, uh, the role of Congress uh, in all of this. Um, and uh, 
coming up, um, the 28th uh, is uh, my son Matthew's birthday and uh, Jenny's ice cream, bless them, is giving us ice cream uh, for these kids to celebrate their birthday. Um, so uh, we've got a lot going on. That's great. Uh, with that. Uh, and, and you know, the it's interesting as well to debate uh, income inequality and wealth inequality. And uh, now, especially as we have a uh, Congress where you have a whole lot of uh, people in the majority in the House who, uh, uh, you know, I keep coming back to Barney Frank's uh, line, uh, people who believe that uh, life begins at conception but ends at birth. And uh, I had a discussion the other day of child labor. Uh, you know, we're having young kids now because of uh, states that are basically abolishing the child labor laws that were put in place in the Depression. And we've got uh, young kids, preteen kids dying in uh, meat processing plants. Uh, and uh, it's... You know, we have a retrogression in many ways to the way things were before we tried to reform our system to create some level of a safety net for people. And that's one of the great challenges we face. And thank goodness we've got these uh, debaters. I will say one other thing, Kavita, which is uh, last night I met David Hogue, who's, uh, you know, became famous as one of the Parkland kids. And I talked to him because if you'll remember, uh, Parkland and Broward County had uh, mandatory de speech and debate in their public schools. So these kids at Parkland, uh, at uh, the uh, uh, school there, um, were taking speech and debate. And one of the topics that they were dealing with was guns. And after this horrific mass shooting, the survivors who came out and were amazingly eloquent and powerful about what guns were doing in this society and were not phased going on major television programs and often being attacked, it was because they knew how to debate and they had the facts at their disposal. And that was particularly true of David Hogue. And we're going to get him to speak to our kids about uh, what debate can do for you and your lives going forward. Uh, so a lot of, uh, yeah, a lot of very uh, uh, terrific things that emerge from this and just watching these kids thrive. Uh, so that's well, occupying well, maybe most we can of my get time them to right now. Be, um, maybe the topic that uh, we wanted to cover uh, around uh, climate change and, and just kind of this back and forth, at least from conservatives and, and Democrats around whether there is a debate across whether hot weather indicates that climate change is happening. Maybe we can uh, ask for one of your one of one of your uh, incredible students teams to take this on. I wouldn't be shocked because I think it would be a great debate to actually listen to. But it's uh, that's well, keep us posted. And we're still going to make a pitch to try to do something from there if possible, because I, I think this is, uh, as you and I have spoken about, this is the only way we're going to actually see change happen. So I'm, I'm 
more of a believer in investments in our younger generation, even though it doesn't seem like our country's policies reflect it. So that is very cool that you got uh, Rosa and David. I mean, even like I said, just having you be able to mentor them is uh, pretty, pretty incredible. But having other these note kind of noteworthy people teaching them is, is amazing. So how well, I'm trying to get I'm trying oh. to get Bernie Sanders and AOC I, to come. I feel speak like to that. Kids. So they should do it. I, I I can't imagine what's more important on their schedule other than like Twitter and their Instagram yeah. feeds. So maybe we can get them. Yeah, that would. You heard it here. Anybody listening who can uh, let uh, Bernie and AOC know that there's there's an incredible opportunity to not just influence but to really teach. I agree. Like I never really learned a debate and it's funny, like reflecting when I watch, um, I think David Hogue may have touched on this, like to your point, like when you are in an environment where you're trying to like make a point and you're trying to also just understand the dynamics, especially if you're, um, someone who's, you know, a different color than everyone else in the room or might be from a different background. Like these are the kinds of skills that you have that can help you, like I, like I say, level the playing field in some in some regard. And I often think of it when I've had to work across the aisle, which was often on the Hill, that even, even things like climate change, which we're going to get into, you have to have a, you have to be able to have like this appetite and patience to understand where another perspective might be coming from. So it's it's very hard to do that unless you have, I think, some of the skills that you're teaching these students. And it's even better that they're learning as young as possible. That's incredible. I love it. I love it. This is great. Well, so tell me how we can get them to uh, talk about climate change. I, I, I will say that um, you raised my awareness to a Heritage Foundation publication <clears throat> uh, around basically their commentary, not shocking, or a roadmap that they offer, especially in time for the presidential and like election cycles around, you know, kind of what what progressives or liberals are trying to do to re- kind of raise alarmism around climate change. Um, and and I, I just pulled up some of their like scholars uh, and they basically, I'll be honest, if I were to just drop in from Mars and look at what was written, I would actually say it's not, re- this is pretty reasonable, some of their words, since uh, we like to cite words, some of the key takeaways from a heritage scholar on this issue. Despite measurement problems, the climate crisis is the stated rationale for interfering with Americans' choices of cars, appliances, and power sources. We need to follow scientific knowledge as it develops and carefully consider costs and benefits of different alternatives. It's summer, but now is not the time for Democrats to use the excuse of climate change to slow the economy further with regulations. Norm, what's what has been your read, and tell us uh, tell us your your thoughts on what you think the heritage, not just heritage, by the way, but just in general, what people are doing to refute like the UN kind of panel on climate change, or just refuting the fact that something different is happening when it's one hundred and ten degrees, you know, when it normally is, you know, eighty. So, heritage, uh, just to step back for a minute vaulted into national prominence when Ronald Reagan got elected. It had been a a small conservative uh, organization. They, uh, when Reagan got elected, they published a blueprint, uh, which was, you know, basically where the right can go forward. And it was embraced by the administration. They began to get tons of money from right-wing billionaires and became a major player in the think tank world. 
got their own building. Uh, they had some heavyweight people. That's changed. And it changed when they made Jim DeMint, who had no scholarly credentials, um, but was one of the most radical right-wing uh, people in public life, a former senator at that point from South Carolina. So we thought, by the way, back then, <laughs> just, just to be clear, I, I, I would actually take Jim DeMint <laughs> above some of the uh, above, like some of the people in the crazy caucus, right? Well, yeah, uh, yeah, Jim DeMint would be in the center of the uh, uh, Republicans uh, now. Anyhow, he turned it into uh, from a think tank, basically into a, a right wing political organization that. Um, bafflingly still has their, uh, I think their 501c3 status. They also have a 501c4. But the serious scholars who had been there, like Stuart Butler, who was a scholar of poverty and a serious person, left. Um, and, you know, now it's, uh, it's still called a think tank by, uh, journalists who write about them, but it's anything but. Anyhow, they are trying to recreate for uh, uh, potentially the next Republican president another blueprint. This one is about climate change and dismantling every element of our executive branch in government that deals with climate change for just uh, the you know sugar-coated reasons that you suggested. And... Uh, it would be devastating and that it's happening now. Um, we are in the midst of, we now know that June was the hottest month on record as best we can measure it going all the way back. And we are headed for a July that overall will be the hottest on record. I have friends in Phoenix where it's been almost every day 115 to 120 degrees. They are strained in their capacity with uh, air conditioning. Um, uh, someone today, this is only anecdotal, told me a story about how while the uh, utility companies have said they're not going to turn off anybody's electricity, that there was an elderly woman who had missed one payment of a hundred and some dollars had her electricity turned off and died uh, from the heat. Um, now, I, you know, I haven't corroborated that, but it's not a surprise. Uh, and we're seeing this all over the place. And, you know, without mitigation, we're talking about the uh, global temperature going up by uh, perhaps as much as three degrees uh, over the next several years, which may not sound like much, but which would be catastrophic. And even the modest things that we're talking about doing, from light bulbs uh, to just trying to provide some incentives for uh, renewable fuels, are being attacked by the crazy right. And I'll call it the crazy right because I think that's what it is. It's a denial of what's going on all around us. And if you just peruse, uh, Twitter, um, you know, you'll see somebody saying, hey, you know, we had this temperature. We saw 115 degrees in Phoenix before. It's the desert. But if you look at the overall numbers, what's happening is undeniable. And the overwhelming consensus of the scientific community 
And then you see the radical changes in temperature, the storms that are taking place, and the idea that you're going to dismantle all of this and leave us in a position where the catastrophes will increase is mind-boggling, but they now have something that's been embraced basically by the establishment Republican Party. And, you know, one other little element here, uh, Alex Epstein is somebody actually who uh, my kids grew up with, whip-smart kid uh, from Chevy Chase, who was captivated by Ayn Rand, and now has written a book and has uh, developed an organization that basically says that fossil fuels are the savior of the world. We need more of them, not less. And uh, he has been treated as a hero by the House and Senate Republican conferences. Uh, it's a it's in some ways preaching to the choir, but obviously, you know, to have somebody who is smart and written a book and seems to have a case of why fossil fuels were the savior of humanity and we need more, not less. Uh, but it tells you where the mindset is right now. And of course, there's plenty of money coming from the fossil fuel companies uh, to amplify this view, but it leaves us in a precarious position. It does, and, and I will say that, um, again, like when you take things on the surface, right, like we need to follow scientific knowledge uh, and consider costs and benefits of different alternatives. You know what? If those words came out of Bernie Sanders' mouth, I would agree too. And so I think that what yet again we've seen in the playbook for conservatives, and I wouldn't even call them conservatives, I'd say for people who are literally trying to like, yeah. you know, stoke fear into the hearts of Americans with misinformation, that's more accurate. What we're seeing is this playbook tactic. Say something that seems somewhat reasonable, add onto it something that taps into a very vulnerable, raw, exposed nerve of the American populace, which is being forced to buy certain kinds of cars, right? Electric vehicles or certain kinds of appliances or certain power sources. And, and then glossing over all of the actual both science and evidence for why those decisions have been made. And then also thinking through at the same time. And, and I will say this is where I have been searching, Norm, and you're um, maybe having still an appetite for Twitter. It is very hard for me to look at Twitter anymore without about 10 seconds into it, deciding like I can't take it. So I, I wonder if you've seen anything. I haven't seen other than kind of, you know, just very literally putting up the maps of the country's heat index. And then I think we haven't been able to talk about um, what's unfolding at the border, especially in the Texas border on the Rio Grande River and, and with kind of the yeah. combination of barbed wire and buoys, which are literally killing people. Add to that 110, 117 degree heat, right? So, so you get these snippets in the media, like here and there, but otherwise you don't necessarily hear like um, the Biden administration, which I, I we put a lot of fault on Joe Biden needs to be the messenger for everything. It's not necessarily like you're hearing a countervailing ta like playbook to say, other than, hey, it's pretty darn hot outside and nobody likes it. So I, I don't know where the, um, you know, what, what, what could we be doing to better educate the public? And, and then let me ask, because I, I was very uh, I, I pleased with the Inflation Reduction Act and what I saw were incredible kind of pushes in the direction of trying to do something around climate. 
what could we be doing policy-wise, if anything, and then how best to counter not just the Heritage Foundation, but like you said, Alex Epstein. I think there's also, I was trying to look up his name, not sure if you recall um, um, Stephen Koonin. Uh, he, he, um, he was actually an Obama appointee in the Department of Energy in, in, uh, and is actually like a well-respected academic. And he wrote an entire book that I listened to on audio, um, trying to find the name of it. Stephen Kooning, who actually wrote that basically the science is actually not as settled as we thought it might have been on climate change. So what do we need to be doing so that the tax credits, the green energy spending, the things that we have, I think, are victories in IRA and other things. And, and also what I see is this is an undercut to the EPA one more time. We know the EPA has been gutted, right? We know that that's what happened in the Trump administration, and we know it's only slowly trying to come back. What else could we be doing to put protections into place and to also educate the public? Yeah. So let me do a, a, a mini rant on the uh, Biden administration here. <laughs> you don't have to be mini. You can do, you, you've um, got, you're, you're, you're the co-host. No, okay. Ma- Maxi, the rant. <laughs> Go ahead. Here's one thing that I would be doing. And I might uh, make Kamala Harris the point person for this. I would send Kamala to Phoenix and and have her talk to people about what it means to have 116 to 120 degree heat every day in an unprecedented fashion. Find people who have been damaged or destroyed by this and highlight it and make it something where you can put the other side on the defensive. Then let me extend my rant to Texas, where I don't think I have ever seen a more sadistic and cruel leader in the United States than Greg Abbott, uh, who, you know, among other things, Abbott, who is wheelchair bound, trying to make sure that people with disabilities can't vote in Texas. But Abbott, who not only has put these uh, things in the in the river so that uh, migrants trying to come to the United States, including, of course, Venezuelans fleeing uh, Maduro, will drown or be devastated by barbed wire in the river, and they're exultant in this. Greg Abbott, who basically said, hey, you got people working outside? You don't have to give them water breaks and people are dying as a consequence. I would send Kamala Harris down to Texas to meet with the family of somebody who collapsed because he or she was working outside and was denied water in 115 degree heat. I would have Kamala Harris meet with the woman who, uh, the pregnant woman who got caught in one of these devices in the Rio Grande River and lost her uh, child and talk about how maybe somebody should uh, call for the $10,000 bounty against Greg Abbott for causing her to abort uh, her fetus. Um, You want to highlight for people the human costs of all of this, even as you work aggressively to try and do what you can through the executive branch because it's not happening through the Congress. But then we have one other obstacle. We've talked about the uh, the radical right. They're not conservatives. Uh, remember that the whole idea of protecting the environment came from Teddy Roosevelt and the conservationists 
These are the opposite of conservatives. And, uh, you know, I, I, uh, you, you want to uh, focus as well on how the Supreme Court has undercut the EPA and is trying to take away much of the ability of the executive to do what Congress is trying to block them from doing, what Republicans in Congress are trying to block them from doing. And of course, the other side of this is the great hypocrisy. What climate change is doing is causing these devastating storms that are mostly hitting uh, red states. And then the red states come begging to Congress for disaster relief. Uh, so, you know, uh, if it were uh, a Trump presidency, the shoe were on the other foot, he'd be stiffing these states. Joe Biden's not going to do that. He wants to be the president of all of us. He's not going to be petty in that regard. But we need to point out the hypocrisy here as well. That's a really, so it's interesting you bring that up about setting the vice president there. I had a conversation with um, both former and some current White House staff actually about the border specifically and not related. You're bringing together uh, kind of these three areas. One is the... um, I'll call it the foundational establishment of Kamala Harris, which I think still needs to happen to this issue, very prescient issue around what is the reality of climate change and kind of how is this like unfolding in the humanity of like our United States. And then third is this immigration issue. I actually said like, why are we not, what is happening on the border? Just like I would have said if Trump, when Trump was president and we were, you know, watching children and separated from adults and putting them in like literally into cages. I said, this is the same thing. Why are we not able to invoke some ability to kind of federal like overlay? And why can't we do that? And they all said that like, it was interesting. These are all like legal people from some from former White House counsel. They all said the same thing. They said that there is, they have explored every jurisdictional element. They have tried to think about you know, even with the removal of Title 42, everything that's possible to protect people at the border, that they no longer have any federal power. And I said, don't you don't you think that that's a problem? And I said, and don't you think that a Republican White House would have figured a way around it? And I actually completely, and people agreed with me. And so I keep coming back, Norm, to, are we just being weak? Like, is this like, is this, is this us capitulating overly capitulating, very typical of Democrats, to, and I don't want to say the rule of law. I'm not trying to invoke that we do anything on the level of being illegal, unconstitutional, violating states' rights. But doesn't it strike you, and and yes, I agree, at a minimum, they should send like Kamala Harris to kind of go there and like show what is unfolding in the humanity, in, in humanity of it all. But does it feel like we're just being weak in response? And it feels like Greg Abbott's winning. I mean, we have a governor who is holding hostage, people killing them. And it is not an accident that there's this visual display. That picture is seared in your mind, my mind, the buoys, the barbed wire. There is no accident for that visual, none. And so are we being weak? The answer is yes. And there, you know, I will give the Biden administration all due credit for the remarkable things that have been done for the achievements in the face of heavy uh, political headwinds. On the other hand, we still have in place an inspector general at the Department of Homeland Security who is utterly corrupt, and the Biden administration has refused to remove him. 
there are people uh, in uh, government who should not be there in government, and they have not taken some of those steps, and they have been anything but aggressive enough in highlighting some of these issues. Now, you know, we can go back, and you and I had talked about this before, and I'd ranted before, that I thought that Kamala Harris made a big mistake when she was given that uh, border portfolio, and the people in her uh, on her staff thought, oh, this is terrible, we're giving the tough stuff. You want to have the tough stuff. I wish she had Im- immediately gone down to the border and highlighted the cruelty of the policies that the Trump administration had followed that she had uh, shown some of these people who are coming to the United States because their lives have been destroyed or they've been threatened by gangs where they are, people who've traveled a thousand miles through enormous hardship to get to the country, the violations of international law when it comes to those seeking asylum. I wish they, they had done all of that. The things that they could do to highlight the cruelty on the other side, to point out why these are problems that need to be dealt with. Um, the use of the bully pulpit has just been so much less than it should be. And I don't see it uh, changing nearly enough uh, now uh, with with where they are. Uh, yeah, I agree. I agree. And, and it feels like you would, you would imagine actually just, uh, we'll kind of, kind of end on this because I think, uh, yeah. a lot of, a lot of listeners have been, um, interested in understanding how you, in particular, Norm, you've been advising presidential campaigns. So while we're doing all of this, like governing of the United States, the Biden administration is trying to also run for reelection. And how does this kind of take shape if you're sitting in like the campaign? kind of, you know, the the inner circle huddle, what would you be thinking about doing? So we, they can't necessarily, you know, get the vice president and president to kind of <laughs> do exactly what they need to do. But how do you think about unfolding the apparatus a little bit so that we can prepare for educating voters or, or alternatively mobilizing voters? Because I think this is, look, it's going to, the summer's going to pass. We're going to come into, you know, a fall season Maybe that'll be cooler. It won't be 117 degrees. It might be warmer than the typical winter. But what would you be doing to to also prepare the campaign apparatus? You know, you, you usually I would say, Norm, people like you and me, we come in when there's like some policy. Um, the the typical playbook of what we did in presidential campaigns before, at least what I did, like in the Obama campaign, was a very like organized. We're going to have these debates. The policy folks are going to debate, and then we're going to have the principals debate. Things are different now. What would or should people be doing on the Biden reelect side to also prepare voters to to be aware and mobilize? I think one of the deep problems that Democrats have is they always make the assumption that actions speak for themselves and policies speak for themselves. And they don't, they never do. You have to highlight not just what you're doing, but what the other side is doing and what they stand for in an aggressive way, and they have not done enough of this. There are weapons there in an administration. The cabinet people you have, the vice president you have, most powerfully the president you have, and you need to confront the evils and the extremists uh, out there in a more direct way. 
you need to frame the way that the debate takes place and that the news coverage occurs and move it away from being just about the horse race, which is where journalists feel most comfortable, and especially away from the pernicious both sidesism that we see uh, in uh, journalism. Uh, and, you know, away from focusing on tactics to the realities of what's out there. And you can do that and govern at the same time. And I don't think they have done a very good job at this. I'll take it back, um, again, something we've discussed before. Instead of framing the first big initiative of the Biden administration as Build Back Better, which is alliterative but meaningless to people, if Joe Biden had gone out there with every one of the policies in the Build Back Better program, that was popular among Democrats, Republicans, and independents, like the child tax credit, uh, like free community college, and had gone to places in the country, including Republican strongholds, including working class areas, to point out that, for example, uh, reduced cost childcare is one of the best jobs programs one could possibly have, to point out how a child tax credit did more to reduce poverty for children than the entire war on poverty, then I think we would have had a different dialogue. Instead, it was all about, is it $3 trillion? Is it $2 trillion? What's Joe Manchin going to do about it? And they didn't put the opponents on the defensive because they allowed them to just say, hey, it's all about big government. So you have to think as a campaign emerges about how you frame the debate and force journalists to respond to your frame instead of the one that Republicans bring up. And now, especially, Kavita, where we're seeing Republicans verge into even more radical territory. All of the presidential candidates responding uh, in that way, and all of the candidates for office. I just read a very powerful column by Mark Baraback of the Los Angeles Times about the cowardice of candidates on the Republican side. All of them out there in the last year still echoing this idea that the election in 2020 had been stolen, knowing full well that it had not, and how uh, many of them are employing what's called what they call an etch-a-sketch strategy. You say one thing during the primary campaign so that you can win the nomination. Then you shake the etch-a-sketch, erase it, and go back to some semblance of reality. You can't let them get away with this. And you have to highlight how the choice isn't a traditional choice between a traditional Democrat and a traditional Republican. It's between somebody pursuing mainstream policies against radicalism. And now it becomes more important to do that because of the pernicious potential impact of no labels, trying to frame this as Joe Biden and Donald Trump being equally radical on both sides of the agenda. And if you don't respond to that, instead of just saying that's crazy uh, and people aren't going to believe it, they are going to believe it unless you respond to it. And the campaign needs to, and the White House really need to get on this. They, they need to get on this, but they also, I do feel like, just just like heritage, uh, have to also, 
we used to call this um, surrogates, kind of mobilizing surrogates. I would say that there's an incredible audience, healthcare people like myself, that can be great surrogates because I know that for a long time, climate change, even to myself, Norm, like other than having like some very casual, like I, I was reading like Stephen Coonan's book, very, it doesn't feel as appreciable to like my work day to day. And now it does. Like I have, this is the first year that I have told people since COVID has kind of recessed, people are wanting to travel and I've been trying to get people out and say, you should travel with confidence. Just be, you know, be aware of crowded spaces. Make sure you have, if you're traveling internationally and you need to get Paxlovid or whatever, I've been doing all of that. This is one of the first several weeks where I've said it is not worth going to Europe because most places don't have an air conditioning. If you're over 70 and you have some other chronic conditions, this literally could kill you. I'm not, and I'm not being overly facetious. So I think that it would be good to kind of bring, I, I, I think um, you've talked about them as like strange bedfellows. And so maybe we can get unusual surrogates that have some credibility with people to actually come out and say, listen, this is whatever the causes are, this is not sustainable, neither for ourselves, our health, for our children, for future generations. And so I'll, I'll close on the note that I'm eager to get our debate camp, uh, that, that you are, are help, that you and your family's work is helping to sponsor to find some of the solutions. I'm going to look to the, I'm going to look to the rising sixth graders to teach, um, all of us what we should be talking about and, and maybe, let, keep us posted, Norm, if this topic does come up on the debate camp side. And I'd be very curious to hear kind of what the public kind of thinks of the, the debate. And then I, I love the idea of also keeping a running kind of uh, reading list. And I'll make sure I, I actually like reading things that are different from the way I think about it. So you reminded me to read Alex Epstein's book. I, I, I remember because he's a legend around the Chevy Chase Bethesda area. I don't know him, but I, I would like, so I'm going to read that. I recommend listeners also read Stephen Coonan's book. Um, I, mean, I, I just went to go Google the title just so people have it. Um, it's called Unsettled. And it's, I thought it was interesting for myself. I just checked it out from the library. And I thought it was interesting because it gave me moments where I thought, all right, the science is not totally settled. But I felt even after listening to it that I'm comfortable, just like I am in medicine, with not having all the answers but making some policy recommendations but based on what we do know. And what we still know, the predominant evidence of what we do know is that climate change is real and that we do need to start making different choices. Will these individual choices, me buying a hybrid car, doing these things, will that make the difference versus what I think the Inflation Reduction Act did, which is creating massive economic incentives? <clears throat> I, I, you know, that we'll see how that fares out. But um, I want to I wanna thank you, Norm. We're going to talk a little bit about some fun stuff in our members only section and hopefully cover um, those of you who are not members. I want to encourage you to join. It's uh, a cold brew a month. I said a latte or a hot coffee. I still drink a hot coffee even in 117 degree heat because I can't drink cold stuff. But I, I would say it's incredibly helpful if uh, you can just let us know what you think and share this episode and become a member of the DSR network and get the bonus segment where we will cover the Trump indictment and Barbenheimer. Words Matters, a production of the DSR Network. Our executive producer is Riley Fessler, and our producer for the DSR Network is Chris Cottonoir. The next episode of Words Matter will be in your podcast feeds on or around August 2nd. See you then. <laughs>